got a little waving. I would call him the Pied Piper, but I see no fruit. Well, I feel as though I should call roll. A good many of my students here. It's always encouraging to uh, serve as a professor with some of the most diligent students in all of America. As a matter of fact, one of them said right as they saw me, is any of this stuff going to be on the midterm next week? So do not be deceived as to why they are here. But you all are a blessing more than you will ever know to me, as is my church. And it's always an interesting event when your spheres or your worlds begin to merge. And so I have my vocational or professional sphere merging with my spiritual sphere here when my students come into the church. And it is a really, really big challenge to be the same in both settings. I am always facing the temptation to preach to my students and then when I get the opportunity to preach, to lecture to the congregants. And so I'm trying to keep these things in place, but it is a challenge to live consistently the redeemed life wherever you find yourself. Living the redeemed life. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Uh, the title, as uh, Elder Dave mentioned, it is to begin with the end in mind. And it is somewhat of a knockoff of Kobe's idea. Except the end that I have in mind is a little bit greater. There's a lot of scriptural wisdom in what Kobe had to say. As he read in Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach me to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. To keep the end of all things in mind. And that is always a challenge in the day-to-day rigors of life. But there's also a way in which we are to understand beginning. To begin with the end in mind has the, the idea of origins. And when we talk of the redeemed life, all of us have a beginning to the redeemed life. When God so moved in our hearts and removed the scales from our eyes and we were empowered to turn and look upon Christ, the Christian life for us began. The pilgrimage. The journey. But many of us have moved along from the beginning. We are on steps two, three, four, five, fifty, sixty. However long we've been on this journey. But there's a way in which the beginning is new and fresh every morning. And so if you are along on your Christian pilgrimage, I want you to understand the beginning in terms of what happens tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off. Tuesday morning. But perhaps there's some here who has yet to begin the journey. Then you too have a place here. And these words speak directly to you. To begin with the end in mind. Daily we begin anew and afresh. I was reminded as I sat down and thought of this of a gentleman who passed on to me some words of wisdom he was given. And it gave me an idea of his heritage, the godly heritage of which he was a part. And he was sharing it to me in his vein. He said, my granddad shared with me that throughout his life, uh, 70 years, every morning he would get up and before his feet hit the ground, 
He would say in his mind, I arise today as a lion in the service of the Lord. And I thought, that's a pretty interesting way to start the morning. I must confess, it is not always how I start my morning. <laughs> Already. It's uh, often what I say to myself before my feet hit the ground. But what difference would it make to begin every day with a reminder of why you are living this day? To begin with the end in mind. The passage this morning is found in Romans 13. And we wrap up yet another chapter in Romans. But you'll hear many echoes from what we have seen already. But I would like for you to turn with me. We are going to do things the old-fashioned way. We have no outline and have no overhead. So we just have to read and listen and think. Not that you don't do those things. But in Romans 13, verses 11 and following, where we read, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to awake from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Let's go to the throne of grace and ask God's blessings on our time this morning. Our Father, we are so very humbled at the thought of approaching your throne. Our great God, three and one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our thrice holy, holy, holy. Lord, we approach your throne humbly. And though we be many, we approach your throne as one. With one voice to praise you for the wonders of your creation and the wonders of your recreation. That you have made us anew in Christ. And Father, we are humbled at the very thought of coming before you. Lord, our hearts are zealous to know what your word will teach us. So I pray that your spirit would unite us and that your spirit would speak through your word. And may all eyes and thoughts be turned to you in the wonders of your Son, Jesus Christ, and whose beloved and precious name we pray. Amen. And do this, Paul says. Now, what's the question that comes to mind? And do this. Do what? It's a very natural question. To do what? Paul begins here the closing of his exhortation. And this refers back to all that he has exhorted of the Christian life. It refers immediately to the idea of let no debt remain outstanding, except for the debt to love one another. Now this is the embodiment of all that he has said previously. But it points back to the beginning of his exhortation. In Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now I know for most of you, your Bibles are well worn there. 
And so turn, or your Bible may open automatically to it. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In this, Paul calls us to look back and describes the Christian life, the redeemed life, in terms of a sacrifice. To present what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But who's to present this sacrifice? Well, you are. You are to present the sacrifice that is yourself. Does that ring any biblical bells in your mind? That is exactly what Christ has done. He presents himself as the sacrifice through which we have life. The call here is to emulate Christ in our life. But he points back to the sacrifice. Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says, through his death, we have life. The redeemed life. Therefore, we should live like and in verse 2, he reminds us that there are only two ages in the whole history of mankind, the history of the universe. This present evil age of darkness, or the age to come. It says, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed and are now members of the age to come. Though we live in the midst of this present evil age. Now, the whole idea is to, to live in the manner we have been created through Jesus Christ. And when I preached on this verse, we talked about uh, Michael Jordan and how he is a wonder on the basketball court. But when he went to play baseball, we were in Birmingham, we got to see how different he was. And you see this magnificent athlete struggling in baseball. And it just didn't seem to fit. And this is the image Paul has given us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that you are members of the age to come. You are members of the kingdom of God. Live like it. Because when you live as members of, the, of this present evil age, it doesn't fit. It's unbecoming. But he calls us to, to look back to the work of Christ in order to understand our life. And that is what this refers to. And we have a direct echo though with a little different nuance of this precise call here in Romans 13. There he called us to look back to the work of Christ. Here, however, he calls us to look forward to the true end of all things and live our lives in light of that. And so in just very short verses, he encompasses all of salvation history. And he says, because of all that God has done for you and because of who you are, live in a way that is appropriate. And do this, he says. Live with the end in mind. The end of things. The end of all things. And do this, he says, understanding the present time. Paul uses a term here for times. Kairos, perhaps you are familiar with. It is in distinction to another Greek term called chronos. You may 
here in that one of our uses of the term chronology. Chronos, although not perfectly, speaks to the linear nature of time, the chronology of things. Kairos, the one Paul uses here, speaks to that opportune time. It has more of a spiritual significance to it. And that's got a lot of significance. And he says, and do this, picking up on how we are to live the redeemed life, understanding the present time. Now, what's significant about the present time in which we live? Well, we live in a time that is significant because we understand things that previous ages only knew in shadows. Sometimes I think we miss the significance of our opportunity to live the life of Christ here and now. We miss the significance of our time in history. The apostles didn't, however. Paul speaks of the opportune moment, the present time. But I want to take this to Peter. So if you have your your scriptures, turn to 1 Peter. This is a rather lengthy passage, but it sets a great context for what we're talking about here. And it's also one of the one of the beautiful unfoldings of, again, salvation history. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Praise be to God the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. Again, do you see how it captures this? Through the resurrection, we have new hope. Looking back in order to understand the future. And and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels longed to look into these things. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, we see great heroes of the faith. We think of Abraham, the faithful one, who walked with God and believed God in unimaginable circumstances. And yet what Peter tells us is that we now know and see things he did not know and he did not see 
Think of Moses, who is called the friend of God. And all that God did through him. And then think, here and now, we know and see things Moses would not know or see. Think of David. Think of Solomon. Think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And on and on. What he is saying is that through the coming of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of what they spoke of. Paul speaks in terms of a mystery. How the prophets understood that they were speaking beyond themselves. They, they saw in shadows. And there was this mystery. And when Christ comes, it is that, aha, this is what he is talking about. And we live in this blessed time in which we can see and understand salvation history unfolding. You see the wonder of the present time in which we live. We can see and know what Genesis speaks of in a way that no one prior to Christ can see and know. In Christ, we see the man who split time and life. Hugh James Kennedy named a sermon and a book after that title. It's one of those you kind of wish he would have thought of. Because it's a brilliant title. The man who split time and half, time and truth, B.C. and A.D. In Christ, he has salvation, history, and hope to us. The present, uh, the age to come, has broken into this present evil age. And the light is shining. Now, the whole image of light and darkness is precisely what Paul picks up on in Romans 13. And he says, be mindful. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Slumber. you ever been traveling? It typically happens to you when you are driving. Not when you actually have the luxury to sleep, but when you're driving. And you're sitting back and you, you get into the rhythm of the travel noises, the hum of the tires, and your eyes just start getting heavy. I see that same look sometimes in my students. <laughs> and I know it's because they've been up late studying the night before and not because they've been playing Xbox or goofing off or something like that, because they're diligent students. But they are struggling so hard to keep those eyelids open that I have to hold back a lack. All of us know that feeling, don't we? They feel like they are 10 pounds each. We get lulled into the rhythm of the traveling lakes. And we get sleepy. Paul is using this term slumber, metaphorically, to refer to spiritual insensitivity. It's a spiritual lethargy, to put it more bluntly, to spiritual laziness. He says, because of the time in which we live, in which the age to come has broken into this present evil age, because we live in this time, it is time to wake up from the slumber, from the spiritual laziness. 
how the Christian life is often termed a pilgrimage, a journey. And one of the great church fathers, St. Augustine, uses the image of a journey or a, a pilgrimage to describe the Christian life. And he says, as you're journeying, there are many beautiful things along the way. And it's okay to enjoy them as you are journeying. But he says there comes a problem when the beauties along the journey cause you to lose sight of why you're traveling. Now, I love that image. Because there are many beauties in God's created world. We are called to delight in them. This is why we ought to strive to, to honor God in our labor. We ought to work diligently and with excellence. Because we labor for Him. And labor is a good thing. This is why we ought to have our relationships characterized by love. Loving our neighbor. Loving excellently. Because this is part of the beauties of the journey. But when we understand things that are to be seen as beautiful and we are consumed by their beauty rather than the one who has given them their beauty, then this is where sin comes. This is where we begin to get lulled into the rhythm of the journey and we begin to lose our spiritual sensitivity so that work becomes a moment itself rather than a means of our Relationships become an end in themselves, rather than a means of honoring God. And the moment we have done that, we've lost sight of the reason we are on this journey to begin with. Now Paul is trying to drive this home. In light of the end of all things, that the kingdom of God, the age to come, has broken into this present evil age. There is a dawn. The light has sparked. Dawn is coming. We ought not to do that which is characteristic of the night. Asleep. But we ought to wake up, he says. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer. Is nearer now than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer. Now if it's getting nearer, what does it tell us it is? In the future. Again, picking up on this journey motif, this pilgrimage motif, our salvation is nearer. Our salvation is future. Now, we do not usually think of salvation in terms of future either, but of the present. We tend to think of salvation in terms of our own personal salvation. But remember, what Paul is driving home to you is you are part of a much bigger story that salvation that he is speaking of here, now listen for our salvation. It is the culmination of salvation and the return of Jesus Christ. It is that proper end of things when all will be set right. When the day, as he says in the very next phrase, when the night is nearly over, the day is almost over. What day is that? It is the day we ought to be mindful of the end as we live life day by day. Because our salvation is near. It is coming closer and closer. 
Now, I meant to mention this in a previous sermon. And now the youth are gone. I did on Sunday school, but they're gone, so I'll always be myself. If I were to ask you, when do you experience eternal life? How would you answer that? My students already know the answer to that question. But if I were to ask you, when do you experience eternal life? For some reason, we tend to think of eternal life as that which is holy future. That which happened after time. After we die, eternal life is what lies ahead. But in Scripture, we're told that eternal life is to be lived in the human life. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That we may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, or Him whom you have sent. You know that you can experience eternal life now. As a matter of fact, as you walk with God, you are experiencing eternal life. This is precisely what Paul is telling us. That the age to come, eternal life has broken into this present age. We are a part of that. Live with it. He says, do not exchange your blessing for a bowl of meat. There's blessing after that. He said that. The salvation salvation. It's going to be he says. It is future, but notice what he says. Understand the present. I love the way Paul writes this. Our salvation is getting nearer. It is future. But what does he tell us to be mindful of? Our present. We are to begin with the end in mind. Our life is to be characterized. And it picks up again on this image. The night is almost, is nearly over. The day is almost here. As a child, I can recall getting up very, 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 very early on Christmas morning. Now, you can't wake your parents up. Okay? You have been given the prohibition. After a few years, they said, all right, enough. We need to sleep and make it through. Don't wake us up until the sun comes up. We're up hours before the sun is up, and we're sitting there checking every two minutes the window. Now, do you know the exhilaration that goes through a child's heart when they look out that window and they see that light blue on the horizon? That first gleam of light. You know that exhilaration, that anticipation. That which we have longed to see is finally here. This again is the image Paul is giving us. The night is nearly over. The day is at hand. And this doesn't mean that Paul is expecting the next day or so Jesus is going to return. He understands, however, that any day could be that day. He lives with the expectancy the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This is that wakefulness about which he speaks. It is so easy to get caught up in the, the rhythm of travel, the rhythm of the journey, to become numb to that which is really real. The very reason we are traveling. He says, don't do that. Be awake. Understand the time. 
that which will be the culmination of all human history is at hand. Live in light of that day. Now, after this, the Paul switches here dramatically. It is as though he has been talking about that which is out here. But in this next series of phrases, it is as though he turns and points to his audience. He says, in light of all this, you live in this world. And he gives us three imperatives which teeter on the very precipice of a kingdom. Live in this world, he says, because of this. How am I to live? Mindful of this? Well, he tells us. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now what he gives us is three imperatives. Three sets of contrasting ideas, of contrasting images. I want you to note well how he builds this contrast. Because this is how we have to live. The first is, put aside the deeds of darkness. Deeds of darkness. Darkness is the quality of these deeds. They are deeds fitting to the mind. They are deeds fitting of this present evil age. Now remember, he has reminded us that we're not a part of that present evil age. Maybe a good point. Let's just go. Because it's getting very dark. The night is nearly over and day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, I mentioned mentioned this contrasting idea. The deeds of darkness are contrasted with light here. With armor of light. Now, whenever Paul does this, he doesn't do it because he's looking for a nifty way to communicate. He does communicate in nifty ways, but he's doing so to drive home on him. We would expect deeds of light. But he doesn't say that. He says, armor of light. It's Paul intending community here. He actually echoes this in Thessalonians, or this is an echo of Thessalonians. Thessalonians 5, where he says, faith and love are the breastplate, and the hope is our armor of salvation. So he uses this armor image. I was struck as I thought through this of uh, the movie Lord of the Rings. It's really big. It's now beginning to people off a little bit. But there's this point where the king of Rohan is coming out of a stupor, a long stupor. And he stands up and he's feeling a little weak. And he is told, maybe your hands would remember their old strength where they should grip your sword. And I was struck by that image in light of what Paul is saying to me. That we feel our strength return when we grip our soul, when we understand our armor. What is our armor? Armor is defensive, it is. But not only that. You have a shield for protection, but the shield is also armor. You have a sword for defense. Yes, yes. And also, yes. And I like 
contrasted in very, very vivid images which are themselves paired off. Now, the first two are clearly images of darkness, of wickedness. We read them and we say, yep, that is definitely bad stuff. That is a part of this whole night, this wickedness. We see that and we recognize it almost immediately. But what do we do with the last pairing? Now, orgies and drunkenness, not a sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. It doesn't seem to fit, does it? But here again, Paul is driving something home by the very contrast of the ideas he communicates. The first two couplings we would see immediately to be. These things are not to be done for those who live as members of the human life. But dissension and jealousy, is it really a whole lot bad? In comparison to the first two? Come on, Paul, what are you saying to us? An awful lot. He is saying there is not one bit of difference between the last couple and the first two couple. Now, that puts matters in a little different light, doesn't it? 
the sensual and jealousy is no better a sin than sexual immorality and drunkenness to all of these things is a healthy reminder that sin is sin. And it is driving home the sinfulness of sin. Whether in our minds it be big or not. Sin is characteristic of those who are part of the kingdom those who have been lulled in the slumber, lulled into the rhythm of the journey, and lapsed into slumber, set aside the vision, to realize sin is sin, and to put these things aside. For this is not walking decently. Walking decently is to act desperately, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Now there's this last couple. Verse 14. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself. Again, this visual imagery to put on. This again harkens to Ephesians. When it says put off for the old man but put on Christ. Christ here is used in the corporate sense that we who are believers in Christ are incorporated into his body. It is the sense that the old man is to be discarded. That which is consistent with the kingdom of darkness, this present evil age, we are dead to that. And we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. We are to put on the new man. In fact, the other scriptures turn to Ephesians chapter 2. For he gives us this corporate sense of being one man in Christ. In the last part of verse 15, he said his purpose was to create in himself one new man. This new man. And this is what Paul is saying, to clothe yourself in Christ. To again, act as your nature the old man has been passed away, been crucified with Christ, and behold, all things are made new. Again, to keep with the putting on language, let's turn over a few passages, a few chapters, a few verses. Where again he speaks of putting on these things. Alright, but I'm not able to find it off the cuff, and so we will just move on. Move on, yeah. God, thank you. It's be a good thing to pick up on your way home, when you get home. To see the contrast with Ephesians and Romans 13. To put on the new man. And if we're all as characterized by it. But he is pressing home this point that we have to clothe ourselves in I was going back over the Pilgrim's Progress, reading back through it. It's always a, a pretty nifty thing to read through, every now and then. I was struck by one image that Bunyan communicates. Yeah. He shows this man who's dressed in a robe of white, and yet gathered around him are other people. 
And you know what these other people are doing? They're picking up handfuls of dirt and choking it on this one as well. So that it would seem to be covered in dirt. But all the one in white would do would be to shake it off and off it would come. And the raiment would remain like that. Now that's a pretty potent image. Now I want you to hear this because it's very easy to get lulled into the slumber. And when you hear this lightning bolt from Paul saying, do not be lulled into spiritual lethargy, and you find yourself going spiritually because you have that, it is very easy to lapse into a world's I can't do it. Thank you, God. But what Paul is saying here is that when we have been incorporated into the body of Christ, we are robed in raiment of pure Christ. That none of our actions are matter. Putting on this raiment of white carries with it obligations to live in a manner that is consistent with it. But it is not our actions that has caused us to be clothed in that way. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it is in His righteousness that we are clothed. And when we clothe ourselves, or when we are clothed with Christ, we will really die God. So that yes, at times we do stumble. Yes, at times we do lapse into this stumble. Yes, at times we don't walk decently. But we are to always be mindful that we are clean with Christ. We kill His wicked obligations. We are to live in a manner that is consistent with that. And to whom we belong. We are to live a life that is consistent with the life. But always be mindful that our clothes are pure and white, not by ours or by the completed work of Christ. Now, because of this, he says, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Because you belong to Christ, because you belong to the age to come, give thought to how to live consistently with it. Give thought to how you may walk decently. Don't give thought to how to gratify is sinful nature. The term is literally flesh. Do not gratify the flesh. And I like the way that New Testament writer E.B. Cranfield describes this. He says, the whole of our human nature in its fullness, organized as it were, as in rebellion against God. The flesh is that part of the fallen human nature that is in rebellion against God. He says, don't give thought to how to stir that. Don't give thought to how to gratify But rather, set your mind on those things that are God. Again, let them keep you. Set your mind on him who clothes you with beautiful things. 
set your mind on how to live consistently. Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned St. Augustine. And he is one of my uh, heroes. I spent a lot of time studying him. I see Snickers in my studio, so I'll not come as a surprise. This passage is very near and dear to my heart for many reasons, one of which is in relation to Augustine. St. Augustine, if you know anything about his life, lived in the precise ways in which Romans 13 tells us not to. He did not walk decently. He was not clothed in the reign of Christ. He was the prodigal son. And we are reading in one of my classes through the Confessions. And we are set to go through this conversion soon next week. And so all of this has been fresh in my mind. But the struggle of Augustine's soul is precisely because he realizes he is making the wrong thing as the ultimate end of it. And so his heart remains dissatisfied. A great opening line of the confession. So I hope for restless to find our rest in you. But we're at the point now where he is consumed with restlessness. Because all of these deeds of darkness do not satisfy his heart. And he is restless. And we have been reaching this culmination point where literally his soul is in turmoil. He has studied and come to see the reality of Christ in the church but he cannot entrust himself to Christ because he has been deceived with fear and so he is hesitant to trust and so in one culminating point he flies out of the house with all his friends and he is sitting under this spring tree weeping because they come along the He's gotten lost in And he hears off in the distance children singing a song for the life of him later he cannot rest. And part of the song is Holy Mary. Take him leave. And it was as though a trumpet blast out of heaven. It was as though that dawn of the dark night came at this penetrated moment. And he picks up the scrolls that he has sitting there. He opens it up. And the verse he reads is this precise passage. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And the dawn came. The lights penetrated the darkness of the soul. And he knew these words the word of God. I wonder if we may not have an Augustine whose soul has been in turmoil because the deeds done in darkness are not satisfied. And you know, you know that you have a justice. Once you hear these words, come to the light. Clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ. Begin this journey. 
there are those of you who perhaps are a ways down in your Christian life. And yet you have been lulled into the world of the journey. And you have found yourself again to slumber. A spiritual insensitivity where your life is lived not for God, but for other things. For work, for friends, for recreation. Maybe these words give it again and you will be. As you hear the lightning bolt Paul's words, wait up. For the end is near. The night is nearly over, the day is Live with your end in mind. For those of you who are struggling with the day to day visit of life, and somehow you just need to get up tomorrow morning and realize it's a day that's worth living. And for you, I will encourage you to be mindful of the end. For your salvation is at hand. You are clothed and moved in the beautiful garments of Jesus Christ. Be mindful of that. And tomorrow morning, again, to the end of the The glory of our grace.